Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we bring you our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive the daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Francis Gilles. Francis, a regular contributor to the Digest, is a specialist on security, energy, and political trends in North Africa and the Western Mediterranean. He's a senior associate research fellow at the Barcelona Centre for International Affairs and a visiting fellow at King's College London. Francis, good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, in a recent paper, you wrote, The Washington Consensus is Dead. Before we get into the autopsy, can you remind our listeners of what the Washington Consensus is? Well, basically, the Washington Consensus, which goes back to the early 1980s, the period of uh, Reagan and Thatcher, uh, the idea was that the state should slim down and that private investors should play an increasingly important role in the economic management of all countries. And uh, the result of this 40 years later is not very convincing in many cases. Uh, Jake Sullivan, a few uh, on April the 27th at the Brookings Institution, declared the old Washington consensus dead and the new Washington consensus, where the state plays a much more important role in keeping with the policy of Joe Biden, uh, is now up and running. So it is a change of tack, but it's due to American domestic politics and not to the failures of this policy in many countries in the global south. So the Washington consensus is dead. Long live the Washington consensus. Exactly. But as as with all these uh, things promoted through the World Bank and the IMF, they are an instrument of um, of organization of the world or domination, some would say, by the United States, which everybody understands full well. But now that the idea that private investment is not the be all and end all of every economic development project, now that we've seen that China, the success of China is very much state led, even if it accommodates private entrepreneurs, um, this throws the whole way many Arab countries can think about their politics and their economic development. Uh, it, it throws it into chaos because you come back to the state and we come back to the role of the state. And that's where Tunisia is in- interesting. Yeah, and, and indeed, you've argued that institutions like the World Bank and indeed many Western observers have misread Tunisia's Jasmine revolution. In fact, you do not see it as a revolution at all. Uh, is there a mismatch between perception and reality? Have we deluded ourselves into believing democracy had been secured in Tunisia? I think that many observers of the West have deluded themselves about Tunisia in particular. First of all, when the Tunisian the revolt, which Popol Ben Ali happened, it came very quickly. It was a matter of three, four weeks. It took everybody by surprise. It was then followed by Egypt, but it took everybody by surprise. So 
foreign powers didn't really have a chance to intervene as soon as they wanted to. And Tunisia is not as strategically important as Egypt, therefore there was less temptation to intervene. But it all happened very quickly. And so uh, disbelief uh, very quickly moved or morphed into delight and enthusiasm. But nobody stopped to think whether this was really a revolution. Now, the way uh, Lenin describes a revolution, you need a, um, an organization, you need a leader, and you need an unambiguous program. None of these features were present in the Tunisian revolt, nor for that matter in the, in the Egyptian revolt. And therefore, the people who organized, if you will, or who led the revolt, young people, once they toppled Ben Ali, they didn't have a program and they didn't have a leader. Therefore, the door was open for the forces which owned Tunisia, the leading economic and political security forces, to regain the upper hand. So they decapitated the system, but there was never a revolution in Tunisia uh, in the way a revolution is defined classically. And that's where the first delusion uh, was. And it was a major one because people carried on in this enthusiasm. And then this morphed into this was then affected by two other factors. One, a number of people in the West, not everybody, but a number of observers convinced themselves that the Islamist party Nahda, which is part of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood movement, Muslim Brotherhood, was a force for democracy and change and moderation, when in fact they were only interested in imposing religious fiat. That was the first mistake. The second mistake or misunderstanding was that the security forces were not in any way uh, reorganized or opened up. And so the old hands were still there very much. And then um, thirdly, there was a, a mistake which is due to the views on Tunisia. Tunisia has been viewed for the last 70 years since it became independent as a moderate, open Arab country. It was a country which gave women rights which they had in no other Muslim country, at least in the Middle East. And so these factors combined to delude people into thinking that Tunisia was moving fast on a path which would lead it to democracy. But not only were the security forces not changed, not reformed, but the legal system was not changed. Now, in Tunis, there are many, many judges and magistrates who are clean and good people, but there are plenty also who are appointed by political fiat. So you can't change a whole judicial machine in a matter of months. It's absolutely impossible. And as for the security forces, the any attempt to, to, to modernize them was thwarted by two things. One, when the Islamists tried to organize a parallel system of uh, information and police within the Ministry of the Interior when they had majorities, uh, at least when they they led the governments of 2011 to 2000 and, or 2012 to 2014. And secondly, because terrorism, which came from Libya, Tunisians trained in Libya, forced the state to reassert its uh, power, particularly the security forces, to defend the country. 
So all this led to a situation where there was no reform. There was no reform in the security services, no reform in the judiciary, no reform in the economy. Although, of course, freedom of expression was much greater and there was far less torture, torture virtually disappeared. There was greater respect for freedom of expression. That is true. But the other pillars of democracy, the economics, the judiciary system, the tax system changes, the economic reforms, all these were missing. And therefore, Tunisia could not progress and uh, the economy started to deteriorate badly. Now, President Kais Said, in his path to becoming a new dictator, uh, arrested the former Speaker of the House, Rashid Hanshi, who's also the leader of Inalda. Um, he arrested him last month and, and uh, he has been sentenced to a year in jail. I'm just wondering why Kaisei took that step, uh, because I don't see that Mr. Hanushi really presented much of a threat at this point to Kaisei. Well, uh, Rashid Hanushi runs the only party which is well organized in Tunisia. There's no other political party which has a network across the country, which has been well financed from whatever source. Um, Nahda has been, until fractions started fighting each other and the authority of the leader started falling down three or four years ago, Nahda was by far the best organized force in Tunisia. Now, Kais Sayed is a conservative in terms of his attitudes, social attitudes, but there's one thing he loathes is the Muslim Brotherhood, Nahda. And he shares his fear of Nahda with, it appears, the army, since the army, which had been relatively neutral, let's say, in the last 30, 40 years of Tunisian history, threw its lot in with Kais Sayed when he took all power two and a half years ago, and the security services clearly agreed. And at the same time, you have to think of the foreign friends of Tunisia. There is no doubt that the Egyptians and the United Arab Emirates, which play a role in this, were, are very happy to see Mr. Hanushi, who's always claimed he was very close to Mr. Erdogan in Turkey, put under wraps. Uh, so there have been a number of things. The other point is Tunisia. I think that in Tunisia, there are many Tunisians who absolutely loathe uh, Mr. Hanushi, rightly or wrongly. The feelings run very, very high. And so in a way, there's a mixture of indifference at what Kais Sayed does, of loathing of a number of Tunisians for Mr. Hanushi, and what the pressures from outside might have been in the Middle East, I don't know. But there is no doubt that Mr. Kais Sayed has been talking a lot to the Egyptian and the Emirati leaders. Well, as you say, they would certainly share his um, distaste, if you will, uh, but perhaps stronger than distaste view of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, we, we know that uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, the Abu Dhabi leader and indeed president of the UAE, is very strongly opposed to the Brotherhood, as, of course, is the is President Sisi in Egypt. But let's now, Francis, talk about the IMF negotiations. Kais uh, is playing this anti-imperialist, nationalist card in resisting demands from the IMF for, for changes before the 
the big the big money comes through. Is this strategy working? Do you think? Well, I mean, it's it's working in the short term. It seems to be working. I mean, it won't solve any problem in the long run, but it seems to be working in the sense that he's, uh, you know, his discourse a few months ago against the um, black immigrants in Tunisia, which was quite overtly racist. It worked up to a point because a lot of Tunisians don't like it, but others fell for it because the standards of living, uh, standard of living has dropped uh, very much in recent years. The unemployment is high. So this kind of uh, racist discourse finds an echo amongst a number of Tunisians. There is no doubt at all. And um, he has also been um, thundering against speculators because the prices have risen a lot in recent months, particularly staple food. Now, when he he, he goes for speculators, there is no doubt he has a point because there is speculation. There, there are people holding back goods, uh, staple goods, and allowing prices to rise to make more money. But also, you can't just keep on denouncing speculators. You've got to propose reforms. And this is where Kais Sayed isn't proposing anything. And vis-a-vis -vis the IMF and the Europeans, uh, a number of his critics will say that he's exercising a form of blackmail because the number of Tunisian illegal immigrants who are leaving the coast of Tunisia to go to Italy has increased enormously in recent months. Uh, the Tunisians are, authorities are doing what they can to stop boats, but clearly there's an epidemic. And of course, this worries the Italians. You can call it blackmail, you can put it, you can call it extreme pressure. Um, you know, Kais Sayed is behaving very cynically, but in the short term, quite cleverly. The problem is that even if he gets a first tranche of money from the IMF, which allows him to avoid Tunisia going bankrupt or at least defaulting on its foreign debt this year, this does nothing to address the deep-seated problems of economic management in Tunisia, which indeed no government has addressed since 2011. And these problems are much more deep-seated than even people at the IMF or the World Bank many of them at least realize Tunisia is a deeply corporatist state. It doesn't really have a middle class. It's a middle class which, when it, in, it gets involved in importing, it, it manages to import, but with certain state rules, which allows it to allow to keep prices high. There is no free competition in Tunisia for a lot of goods. So the Tunisian state is in a huge mess economically. But can he use this anti-imperialism rhetoric, anti-colonialism rhetoric to to address his domestic audience and say, you see, I'm standing up to the IMF because they are trying to force, just as they always did, force their views, their perspective, their demands on us, and we as Tunisians must resist. Is, is, is that the message that he's banging out? That's basically the message he is banging out day in, day out. But he is acting in a kind of political void because the the total the the between 2011 and when he took all powers in 2021, not one Tunisian government or president, for that matter, believed in the reforms they were signing up to when they signed the IMF or the World Bank documents. 
they paid lip service to it. And so often the Tunisians are very good at paying lip service to Western norms and in fact not respecting them at all and dressing it up in a very clever way. So nobody was attempting to make reforms in Tunisia. If you take the, the port of Tunis, which is a sieve, anything can come through the port. We know there's a lot of contraband, massively uh, goods coming in, not paying taxes. There has been no attempt, uh, these very vaguely in 2017, 2018, by one minister, Fadel Abdelkifi, to reform this extraordinary corruption, which means that the ports of Tunisia in general, but particularly Tunis, are run in part by gangs. And some people have even suggested you should put the army into the ports of Tunisia. That's just one example. But nothing has been done to reduce the power. For instance, the tax system is very predatory and there is no recall. If, it, if you get taxed a certain amount, you've got, you have no recourse against the tax authorities. It's totally opaque. This state is run for the interests of the senior civil servants and certain businessmen. And everybody knows it, and nothing has been done in the last 10, 12 years to address these problems. So the disgust of many Tunisians who stopped voting, I mean, as we see earlier this year in the referendum on the new, new constitution, etc., 10% of Tunisians vote. But the Tunisians have been voting less and less in the last 10, 12 years because they are totally disgusted with the political system, with the political parties. And in a way, they seem to be resigned to a return of authoritarianism. I mean, that's the sad situation, but the reality of Tunisia today. Mm. And you've talked about that, the ugly side of Kaysaid's nationalism, which is the attacks on uh, Black African migrants. And of course, that has a resonance in Europe, this fear of the small boats rhetoric and and i think you uh, you wrote that uh, tunisia the strategy is the too scary to fail strategy that he's playing this this card as well that you have to support me because if you don't the small boats are going to pour onto your shores well i mean i think i think this is play, being played quite deliberately in in tunis uh, there is also a feeling i mean what can you say his criticism of the west whether it's founded or not is another question, but it's certainly shared by many Tunisians, particularly younger Tunisians. Um, right across North Africa today in Algeria and, and Morocco, the feelings about Europe, about the way Europe behaves or the way France behaves is, is very, very critical. Even in Morocco, they don't say it quite openly. So there's a feeling of going back to colonial days saying we've been screwed every time by the West. They don't want partnership with us. Barcelona, the Barcelona process was an empty process. They're only prepared to collaborate when we have terrorism in our country and they want to avoid it spreading. So there they, they do help us and they make us pay for it because in Tunisia, um, in Tunisia, the Tunisians have paid Europe and America for many of the training and weapons they've got. Um, so there is a feeling of latent bitterness about the West, which did not exist 20 years ago. It's coming out now, I think with the younger people, it's coming out more because they're better informed. Of course, they are on social networks, but they're better educated. And they no longer share the deference of their elders towards 
French civilization particularly or Europe. They may wish to move to Europe to have a better life, that is true, but they also see through what they consider as the empty European rhetoric on democracy. They listen to American leaders and European leaders preach democracy, and immediately they turn around and they say, is that what they practice in Iraq? Is that what they practice in Libya? Is that what they've practiced for 70 years with the Palestinians? And these are arguments which are very difficult to counter. And mm -hmm. Gay Sayed is playing on this and probably shares, however misconceived some of these ideas may be, nonetheless, they are widely shared and they reflect the more, the more broader issue of the global South not buying the Western line on Ukraine. It's, it fits into this shift in the world of, of world opinion. Mm. Now, just to remind our listeners uh, what the Barcelona process uh, was. Well, the Barcelona process was launched in 1995 by the Spaniards. And the idea was that because Europe, the European Union had opened up to Eastern Europe uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, there should be an upgrading of relations between Europe, the EU and the Mediterranean. But economically, it was not very ambitious. The main purpose of the Europeans was to secure the markets of the Middle East or the Maghreb, uh, the countries around the Mediterranean for their own goods. But they were not prepared. Uh, they wanted more, greater freedom of trade for their own goods. But at the same time, they restricted the access of uh, farming produce from Morocco and Tunisia and Egypt. And they also never conceived of freedom of movement of people. And to have free trade without freedom of movement of people is a bit of an oxymoron. It's a bit of a contradiction in terms. And then after 9-11, uh, the restriction on visas, terrorism, all this played into this, and um, the restriction on visas became much tighter. And in the last two years, for instance, the French have curtailed their visas to Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, particularly Morocco and Algeria, hugely, thus provoking in those two countries, and also the Tunisians who watch, very bitter feelings about access to France and access to Europe. So there's a whole international environment in which people in, in the southern shores of the Mediterranean in general no longer believe what the European leaders, let alone the American ones, say. And that makes it much more difficult for Europe to counter the populist discourse of somebody like Kay Sayed. Mm, yes, it uh, it fits rather nicely with that discourse because the Barcelona process, as you described, was essentially an exploitative one designed to benefit Europe at the expense of, of the Maghreb. Um, let me ask you now about the IMF negotiations. Kay Sayed is dragging those negotiations out, in part playing this nationalist and anti colonialist card. Uh, how dangerous is that as a tactic? How dangerous is it to the situation in Tunisia? Well, it's always dangerous. The problem about the situation today is it's very difficult to know exactly what's going on, because on the face of it, Case Sayed doesn't listen to anybody. On the other hand, in the IMF and the World Bank, there are clearly people who are trying to avoid the worst. The other thing is that with American thunder, you've got to be very careful because 
Secretary of State Blinken as sounding threatening. On the other hand, when there was the um, terrorist attack uh, on the Jewish synagogue of Lagriba during the pilgrimage a few weeks ago, the West, Western leaders and the Americans straight away came out in backing Tunisia, saying, we will back you, uh, yes, tolerance towards the Jews, etc., etc. So it's a game of chicken with many, many parts, which are not, not very clear. And it can go on for a certain number of months. The Tunisian economy is in a huge mess. The economy has gone more and more informal. Uh, whether the Tunisian people are prepared to put up with this regular decline in their standard of living or not. The only way to, to know is the reaction of the street. Now, it has imprisoned some bona fide Democrats and leaders of NGOs and that sort. Of, but for the moment, it hasn't created a stir in the broader population. This may be because Tunisia is two countries. The coast is more developed, much richer. It sucks in the wheat, the water, the labor of the interior, which is much poorer, which is much less well-equipped in hospitals and schools. You know, all the money made from phosphates and oil and crude oil and wheat and everything, in, in a way, benefits the coast. Now, the people of the interior are not necessarily very interested in democracy. The people of the coast may be more so, but even then we overestimate the, we probably overestimate the attachment of Tunisians to what we call democratic rules. Uh, and this comes back to the, your first question, have we not deluded ourselves about the extent to which Tunisians are attached to democracy as we see it. I mean, we've had rise of populist movements in Europe. I mean, God knows Brexit was predicated on a huge lie, which was bought by the population of a very well-educated rich country. So why shouldn't it happen in Tunisia? Madame Le Pen has a very large score in France. Other populist movements in Italy, the prime minister comes from a populist party. If electorates in rich, developed, educated countries buy this, should we be surprised that electorates in poorer countries, they're well-educated, less well than Europe, why shouldn't they buy it as well? I think it's a broader movement across the world, and whether we like it or not, that's what we're faced with today. The other difficulty with Kais Sayed is that most people who, people who know him better, I've never met him, argue that he takes his decisions on his own. I suspect there are people we do not know who are there advising him, but I do not know because it is a very secretive game. For the first time in the history of modern Tunisia, many Tunisians have great difficulty in knowing all of what's going on at the presidency. What is going on? The government is not particularly good but what is going on in the presidency? And th this opaqueness is something quite new in Tunisia. So we can always assume the worst and say the guy hasn't a clue as to what he's doing. He's just playing a game of poker, which is very dangerous. Or we can think, well, maybe there are some people who are advising him and who are shrewd 
who are shrewd players. I really don't know. And I think many people are scratching their head every day and Tunis just wondering what is going on at the moment? Mm-hmm. What is going on? Now, our colleague uh, Megan Mandur wrote in yesterday's newsletter about the very real threat of a banking collapse in Egypt, uh, another country with a staggering debt load. When we look across North Africa, how precarious and therefore dangerous is the situation in the region, given that economic collapse will inevitably lead to massive disorder? Well, I mean, I'm, the question about Tunis is that if you've got 50% of the economy in the informal sector, and I'm speaking to friends who are small businessmen, and when you see the way they're managing managing to carry on their business, in some cases even expand them, they do it by rules and behavior, which has got nothing to do with the classical liberal economic textbook. It's all agreements between different people who trust each other, particularly regionally, to um, provide raw materials at a certain cost. And none of this is in the official figures. You know, the banks are being bypassed. Many people go and borrow money privately. It's all networks of family and trust. And therefore, it becomes very difficult to have a proper photography of the economy. And one might sometimes get a too pessimistic view of what is going on. If you turn to neighboring, well, Libya is in the state it is in. Algeria, there's no question of economic collapse in Algeria, because uh, if only because the income from oil and gas can keep the ship of state more than afloat at the moment in view of the prices and the, the, the fact that many Europeans want more Algerian oil and gas. And as for Morocco, it's a tight situation, but the banking system in Morocco is arguably... Uh, the most modern in the Arab world outside the Gulf. So there's no risk of collapse, however difficult the situation may be. But Egypt? Well, Egypt seems to be a case of its own. I think the indebtedness of Egypt is clearly huge. And then it's also just the sheer size of Egypt. And when you're dealing with 80 or 85 million, whatever the number of Egyptians are, and it's also a key country in strategic terms, I mean, you see, what happens in Morocco or Algeria is of relative importance. Tunisia is small, and as long as there's not a popular revolt in Tunisia against Kais Sayed's um, policy, as long as the army and the security forces agree, because they haven't always agreed in the past, but for the moment, both seem to be agreed to back Kais Sayed, I don't think one can speak of the collapse of the state. I don't think there's a risk of collapse of the state. If there were riots again, if people took to the streets, that would be a different matter. But in the case of Tunisia, contrary to Europe, there may be people in prison. There is no doubt that Kais Sayed has moved against the media, but you can't compare it to Egypt. Egypt, it seems to me, is is a far more brutal system of repression uh, than Tunisia. And to that extent, I suppose the Tunisians are quote unquote moderate compared to the to the Egyptians. So, you know, we, we are in a very strange situation. But certainly what Kais Sayed is doing, he may gain a few more months. But this in no way addresses the problems of Tunisia. Tunisia is a neo-patrimonial state. 
where the middle classes, the supposedly entrepreneurial classes, so beloved of the Washington Consensus, are in fact people who have rents, rents coming from state regulations, which allows them to make money on all kinds of goods. Algeria is a rentier state in the more classical sense of oil. Morocco is less rentier, though power and wealth are very concentrated amongst a few ruling families. So all these states are patrimonial or neo-patrimonial states. And as long as this is not changed, as long as these states are not rebuilt, which would require revolution, you're not going to get a growth in North Africa, which uh, is commensurate with the challenges facing the region. And as a result, we continue to get, well, we get flight of capital that we've had it for 60 years. So that's nothing new, but we still get it. But also more worryingly, particularly for Tunisia, is the flight of educated Tunisians, not just doctors and nurses, all kinds of people who are who've got who are good at plumbing, at electricity, at IT, are leaving the country and setting up shop in Europe, in Canada, and in the Gulf. That is the disaster that is facing Tunisia. It is losing its educated younger people. That is, it's the always the same story. The same thing is happening in Algeria to a slightly lesser degree than in Morocco. But in Algeria, the planes to Canada are full every week. The Algerian younger educated people are fleeing the country. In Tunisia, they're fleeing the country. What future is there for a country if its youth, its educated youth, votes with its feet? That's the real question. Yeah, yes, indeed, Francis. And uh, Canada has a very aggressive uh, uh, immigration policy. Uh, the country wants to bring in, I think, a million uh, immigrants a year. And that contrasts very sharply with attitudes in Europe and certainly here in the United Kingdom. We will watch this space. Um, Kai Saeed, he is playing for time and maybe he can sort something out. But uh, I don't know, Francis. If I was a betting man, I would. I don't know that I'd put uh, money on on Kais Said because he is such a, well, he's a cipher almost, isn't he? Uh, he is a cipher, but he is difficult to read because nobody would have expected him to be able to play this game with the IMF as long as he has, without the economy collapsing. But he has. So there are certain elements for me, at any rate, which are missing, which I don't quite understand. Is the West barking? officially, at least the Americans, when in fact, behind closed doors, they're being much more lenient because in view of the war in Ukraine, in view of the, um, you know, the re-election of Mr. Erdogan, in view of what's going on in Iran, in view of the continuing chaos in Libya, they've got their plates so full that at the end of the day, Tunisia isn't important enough to take hard and fast decisions. The Tunisians might get away with more simply because we don't want them in the West to fail. No, we don't want that. But at the end of the day, if giving them a little more rope is fine for the next six months or year, we'll give them a little more rope. I suspect that may be the real story about Tunisia. It's a sad story because until the Tunisian leaders and the Tunisian people face up to the way they're governed economically, change that 
way of governing until they understand they can't have a poor interior and a rich coast until they abide by the rule of law and indeed democracy if you will they will not be able to rebuild their country economic but then economically but then nor will any other arab country on the uh, southern rim of the mediterranean be able to have steady strong growth unless there is not a root and branch reform of the way the countries are governed. Mm. Big challenges, Francis. Uh, we'll draw to a close uh, for, for this podcast, but I know we'll be back to talk to you again about the situation in Tunisia and indeed uh, the broader uh, Maghreb. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Francis Gilles, a specialist on security, energy, and political trends in North Africa and the Western Mediterranean. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Francis. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. Music